You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony, coming on January 14th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time is my $15 writing course, Kickstart Your Novel for 2023. Register at TonyDuchesne.com or DrinksWithTony.com. Do you have a novel in a drawer collecting dust that needs a punch-up? Do you have an idea for a novel but don't know where to start? Do you want tips and tricks on how to complete your novel? Then this live online course is for you. Join me Saturday, January 14th on Zoom, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. London, and it's only $15 to join. Register at TonyDuchesne.com or DrinksWithTony.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is David Leaf. He's the author of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. We discuss what it's like to work with Brian Wilson, behind the scenes of TV production, his first job writing sports journalism, how he learned to tell stories by hiding contraband from his parents, how to know when you've fallen in love, and so much more. Hi, I'm David Leaf, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have David Leaf. He's the author of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, which originally was published in 1978 as the Beach Boys and the California Myth. But now, four decades later, there's also much more uh, information in this book with contributions from Paul McCartney, Barry Gibb, Jimmy Webb. Uh, Melinda Wilson, and also catching up with Brian Wilson's career and what he's done since 1978. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. What are we drinking? Well, I'm drinking uh, kombucha, super energy, raw kombucha, multigreen. What are you drinking, sir? Red wine. Oh, my God. (laughs) You're already doing the show better than me. Well, yeah. Well, for, for goodness' sake, it's it's uh, well, you know, it's two buck chuck. You're drinking two buck chuck? No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I can't. I, I can't drink two buck chuck anymore. It's too. I I feel it. It's. I don't know what it is. I feel like they process it in a certain way to like kind of make, you know, make it go faster or something. It doesn't taste like it used to. I I have I don't have a sophisticated wine palate. Maybe I'll step up to the Charles Shaw. If you and, and you, you're in really good space there, because if that's it, if if it's two buck Chuck and you're cool with it, you could buy a mansion, right? <laughs> After a while. Well, I don't I don't drink enough to save that much, but yes. <laughs> well, you're you're on two buck Chuck, so you can you can have. You can have three bottles of wine a night, and it would be like a glass of wine at a, a bar on happy. Oh, no, I'm like a half a glass of wine a night. That's 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 my life. Yeah, that's good. It's good for the. Uh, do they say it's good for the heart? I don't know what they say. I don't know what I don't know what they say or how they say it or if they're right or if they're wrong. They're generally wrong, but it takes a while for them to admit it. 
That is so, that's so true. It, it kind of seems how things are these days where people are generally wrong, but they speak with authority. And then they just, and then they hope that nobody catches that video where they spoke with authority eight months earlier. <laughs> well, I write with authority. Let's hope nobody catches up with me. I Well, that's, we, we need to write with authority because we are authorities on our subjects and you are much more of an authority on Brian Wilson and than I would ever be. So I accept your authority. Thank you. It's a good decision on your part, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what was it like? Um, it was, was the first book, was that um, like, how did you get the, how did the first book come together? Um, when I was in college, I was studying to be a journalist for a while until I realized that was much too much work. <laughs> but, I, but, I read, but, I, but I read about Edward R. Murrow, and what I understood from his biography was that that's, you could tell a story and you could change the narrative of the story. You could change the direction of it. And when I discovered Brian Wilson's story, I, I became obsessed. And I moved to California in large part to write a book about Brian, to become his friend, um, and help him finish Smile. As, as insane as that notion sounds, um, that was in my head. Did, so, so before you moved to uh, California, have you, ever, have you ever met Brian Wilson? Did you have a connection already? Until I read the Rolling Stone article about Brian Wilson, I'd never even heard his name. Uh -huh. I had no connection whatsoever. I, w I was a sports writer. I, I, I wanted to be Marv Albert or, you know, you know, or Vince Scully or one of those guys, Bob Costas. I didn't. I didn't know anything about uh, the music business. I didn't know anything about uh, the Beach Boys or Brian Wilson. The only book I had read about music was uh, Hunter Davies' authorized biography of the Beatles. So that was kind of my my model: is tell a story. Because in reading that story, I learned so much about my my heroes. And that's what I wanted to do with Brian's book. However, so much of what I was learning and did learn was really disturbing, was really upsetting. And so I, I feel like with the first book, it was a mission to tell the story, to grab the world by the, the, the collar and say, hey, you got to pay attention to this guy. He's a really important artist. And by the way, what is going on with his life. You know, everybody you kind of make fun of the Beach Boys and all that, but this is this guy is, you know, Beethoven. Pay attention. It's it and it's um yeah, it's intriguing because like even the Beatles, they they had a little they made fun of the Beach Boys. They're the the Beach Boys weren't known as uh well no no the Beatles the Beatles didn't make fun of the Beach Boys. Oh they Boys didn't at, oh, okay. at all. No, 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 no. In oh. fact, in fact, um they had a they had a rivalry going in oh, 65, okay. 66, 67, as 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 Sir Paul and Brian describe it, it was can you top this? It went rubber soul, pet sounds, good vibrations, Sergeant Pepper. And in between good vibrations and Sergeant Pepper was supposed to be an album called Smile. And it didn't come out. And probably one upping each other actually made them better 
musicians and wanting to get to the next level? It, it made them not be satisfied with doing the same thing over and over again. So I think it was in 1966, John Lennon was asked about Revolver, probably after somebody heard Tomorrow Never Knows, and said, are you afraid you're going to lose some of your fans? And he says, we may lose some of our old fans, but we'll make some new fans. And that's what, that's what was in Brian's head. So, so when he did Good Vibrations and they did Strawberry Fields Forever and, and Penny Lane, it was like he, he was hard at work on, on the Smile record which he thought was very competitive with, with, with where they were going. So what was, so you, what was it like to go to like meet Brian Wilson for the first time? Wait, were you, did you already have kind of the book in progress or were you just like, okay, let me see if this guy will even talk to me. Um, kind of none of those mm-hmm. actually, I, I met him on a basketball court which was as bizarre a place to meet him as, as imaginable because the legend was, oh, he never gets out of bed. He's, he's in bed all day. So, so to be shooting baskets at the, at the West Side Y and have him and his cousin walk onto the court and say to my friend, hey, you guys want to play two on two? So that's the first time I met Brian. Now we didn't- And who won? Well, the way I like to describe it, he was all offense, no D. Uh-huh. So when, he, when he got the ball, he shot. When we had the ball, it was we, we it was like playing two on one. We, <laughs> even though his cousin was Stan Love, who had just retired from the NBA, um, I don't remember who won. All I remember is I couldn't wait to tell my friends back east that I had met Brian Wilson and played basketball with. Now I met him a couple of times in, in the next year or so at, at various Beach Boys events, but it wasn't until I was working on the book that close friends of his who I was talking to as sources felt that I should get to spend some time with him, not interview him, because interviewing him can often be uh, fruitless. But they said, why don't you get to know him, get to spend time with him? So they invited me over to dinner when he was at their apartment. It was just the four of us. And it was pretty surreal, to say the least. He's just, he was depressed. He was introverted. I, I really didn't get to know him that night. Uh, sometime in the months before the book came out, but when it was already finished, I was at my apartment with, with a friend of mine who was a big Beach Boys collector. Um, and we had gone out to dinner, had some pizza. And at one o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on the door. And there were two L.A. scene makers were at the door, Rodney Bingenheimer, the famous DJ Rodney on the Rock, yeah, and, Har- and Harvey Kubernick, the L.A. journalist, who at that time was Melody Maker's West Coast correspondent. And with them was Brian Wilson. And I knew Harvey, and Harvey said to me, we didn't know what to do with him, so we brought him here. And then they <laughs> left. And it's like, my friend and I, who were massive, obsessive fans, were like, okay, now we're with Brian Wilson. It was a small one-bedroom apartment. And Brian said, you got anything to eat? <laughs> because food, food and music are like, they're, they're neck and neck is his favorite things in life. And so happened, I had a couple of leftover slices of pizza from dinner, heated them up. He ate them quickly and then lay down on the couch and took a nap. It was around two o'clock in the morning. 
It's like, hello, hero. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And um, he woke up around four and said, hey, can you give me a ride home? And I did. So that was. So I had some, my first meetings with Brian were unusual, to say the least. It's, it the, what's it like? Do you remember that driving him and just it, was there part of you just going, oh, my God, I'm with like legend here. And the other part of you going, stay focused on the road, stay focused on the road. Well, actually, it, it, what was funny about it was we got in the car. I had been to that, the house he was living in. He was separated from his first wife. I had been to that house maybe two or three weeks earlier with the friend who had invited me over for dinner was bringing him some clean, some nice linens and towels. And she had asked me to drive him there. So I knew where he lived. But when we got in the car, I said, Brian, where do you live? No answer. So I drove down Santa Monica Boulevard, down the California incline, up Pacific Coast Highway, turned up Chautauqua towards Sunset in Pacific Palisades. I knew where he lived. He, the whole time, I'd say, am I going the right way, Brian? No response. We get about a quarter mile through the house. He goes, okay, it's coming up here on the right-hand side. <laughs> And, and we is part and, of you just like just get out of my car, you freak? And the other part, going, <laughs> or was there was there sort of some sort of relief where you're like, okay, that was weird. I'm glad I got him out of my car. No, it was, it was neither. It, it was we sat in front of the house, waited till he got inside safely, and then we looked at each other like, did this really happen? <laughs> um, but but what did happen was when the book came out, his friends who had, I had interviewed for the book. Um, in, you know, really in, in brought me into his life. He said, this is a good guy. He's on your side. And mm -hmm. that's, that's when the friendship began. And that's good because there's, there's, there's trust involved when you're putting together the narrative of someone's story. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I got to know him. Um, it was a very difficult time for him. He was not doing well. He was in the hospital. I remember going to visit him at the hospital right around this time uh, a year uh, in Christmas. And one of his friends brought a little artificial Christmas tree to put in his room so it wouldn't be as grim as hospital rooms are. I mean, you, you're talking about, a, you know, a mental hospital. It's, it's, it's not a happy place. And so I got to know him uh, in very dark times. And um, I, I was, you know, part of the world around him when he was, as as Brian put it, in prison during the nine years where Landy controlled him. And uh, then when he got out of prison, um, he and he and his his friend, uh, who he had been dating during the Landy years, but Landy had put a stop to that. When they started dating again, the four of us were going out as as couples, mm. and and so we were like, you know, we were the old married couple, and they were teenagers in love. So it was getting to know him as a real person. Hmm. That's yeah, that's just amazing. So, And then you develop a 40-year relationship with him. Uh, it, absolutely. It, it's and, and different relationships depending upon what's going on in his life. Mm -hmm. So when he was making his first solo album, I had been hired by Warner Brothers records to to do the press kit for it 
which is the longest press kit I think in the history of the music <laughs> business because I had so much to say. Yeah. I, and I remember driving to his house the first time I interviewed him, he was living in Malibu. And when I was driving home, I was thinking, boy, that went very badly. I did a terrible job. And then when I transcribed it, it was like, oh, my God, the things he said, but he says it in such a compact way. I mean, I'm yakking and yakking and yakking. You know, he he could say something very, very simple, like, well, you know, David, um, I'm much deeper than people realize. And that's a very short answer. But when you see it on paper, you, you, hear, you realize he's saying that to you. And then you're putting it into the context of, of a press kit. He had a lot to say. Huh. You know, like music is the voice of God. You know, just just that one sentence. That's a that's a pretty big deal when you when you start to think about. It. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I've like I've heard that more recently where people talk about like music being like divine communication, and it makes sense because we could like you know language wise, if we go to anywhere in the world, you know that we don't know the language, we'll have a hard time communicating. But certain music comes on. And we'll all like either dance or sing along or, you know, there's, there's some, there's something almost, there is like a divineness to the language of music, which. Yeah. Brian's very specific about how spiritual he believes some of his music is. Mm -hmm. Um, And to your point about being in another country, when we were in Japan on, on his first, the first year he was touring, uh, the man who was driving us around, hardly spoke English, didn't know who Brian was. And, and when we stopped at the, at the last place in Kyoto where he was giving us a tour, Brian and Melinda went in to buy gifts for their, their two little kids. And I said to the driver, do you know who that man is? And he said, no. And I said, that's Brian Wilson. He makes the Beach Boys music. And he said, his music makes my heart soar. Huh. Now, he didn't know anything about surfing or cars or the beach, but his music makes my heart soar. 463-page book I just wrote, all you need is that one sentence. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> and then um, – and wait, you uh, you've been doing a you've done a lot of you because you you said you wanted to start in sports and then you kind of moved toward music, doing a lot of music. Uh, it, I, music was my religion when I was a mm-hmm. kid. Um, yeah. Music and sports were my religions, but I didn't. There was no way I was going to make a living in, in around music because I was too lazy to to practice the trumpet or the piano. Um, but I realized when I first heard Brian's name and read about him and heard this the one song from smile and I wanted to write about it. I was passionate about it. I started writing about music and I was like, Oh, you can write about it and express all the feeling that the music gives you. And that's kind of what I've been doing is expressing that feeling, whether it's in an article or a book or a, or a documentary or a television show ever since. What a wonderful decision you made to just go, hey, I like this. This is my religion. Oh, by the way, it's going to be my career, too. Well, you know, I had no idea it could be. And yeah. believe believe me, there were years where 
the decision necessarily didn't seem like a good one from an economic point of view. But there were moments that were indescribably exciting, like being in a in a soundstage. I was a what they called a gopher on a, on a television special production assistant. Go for coffee, go for lunch, uh-huh. go for whatever. And the producer said to me one day, "Come on, kid, we're going we're going over to rehearsal, and we go into this giant soundstage, and the only people in the soundstage are this orchestra in the corner. And it's the Nelson Riddle Orchestra." orchestra and standing next to the orchestra is Nelson Riddle and standing next to him is Frank Sinatra. And the producer and I pull up chairs, maybe 10 or 15 feet away from, from this and producer and and Mr. Sinatra exchange exchange pleasantries and okay, Paul, you ready for us to run the show? Yes. And they start playing. It's one of Sinatra's classics. Like I've got you under my skin. And I'm thinking, this this is like the coolest place in the universe. I'm getting a private concert from Frank Sinatra. What can I do to earn a place in this room? Now, because my job was as the production assistant was to always be at the producer's side for that moment when he needed something, I got to watch how he did his job. And when the show was all over and edited and I saw it on television, I, I had the idea that what he had done was what a museum curator does. He takes a great piece of art, he puts a frame around it, and he presents it to the public. And I said to myself, where I got the confidence to say this, I don't know. But I said to myself, I can do that. And and that really is the guiding spirit of all of the all the television work I did, all the films I made, was there's this great artist and there's a story to tell about them. James Brown, John Lennon, the Bee Gees, and on and on and on. And Brian Wilson, certainly first and foremost. So, so what was your first uh, product? What was your first um, TV production as a producer, or, or your first gig as a producer, where you had the responsibility? It was thrown on your lap. What was the first one of that? Um, the first one was was a, was a three part docu series on Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were Martin and Lewis, their golden age of comedy. My first music one was, I called it, You Can't Do That, The Making of a Hard Day's Night. Well, so and, so the first time that you're doing the uh, Lewis and Martin, um, that's the one where, I mean, are you, do you feel like you just jumped into the deep end when you're trying to pull it together? What's that first job experience like? Because yeah, yeah. we all got, we all got, we can produce. We could produce, and then then you produce. Well, there there was a good dozen years between working as a production assistant and my first production, where I was working on a lot of television shows. So I had been around it. I saw what producers were doing, good, bad, or indifferent. I saw what was done, and I just, you know, with me. What each program, which each, which each, with each documentary, what I was learning to do was okay. What's the story here? There's a story to tell. What story am, am I going to tell, and how am I going to do it? And that was really with the Martin Lewis docu- documentary. That was the first time it was kind of in my hands. With with the the making of a hard day's night, you can't do that. That was the first time. It was in my hands where it was music that I loved, that was that was in my blood. 
And uh, I, I remember the first cut of the um, the documentary. Uh, the 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 executive producer of of it had been had been the producer of a hard day's night, and he watched the the, the rough cut, and and he said to me, he said, how how long is this? And I said, it's a little over ninety minutes. And he said, you know, you've made a making of documentary that's longer than the movie itself. <laughs> and he said, he said, some of this works really well. Cut it down and and. Uh, and we'll have a show. And so it was each each time it was a different experience. Uh, but I, I never lacked for, for confidence. Mm-hmm. I, I never I never thought, gee, am I going to be able to do this? It was more, how am I going to do it? Is, is a lot of that also knowing um how like who to hire and how to hire and their reputation, you know, just because I mean because you're as as a producer, there's a lot of moving parts that you have to delegate, right? Is that how it works? Yes, if you're real, if you're the real producer, for sure. Yeah. Um. I I had actually in the mid '80s, been uh, had worked on a show called Salute to the American Songwriter. I'd been the writer and co-producer of that for for three years. I, so I didn't have the overall responsibility. My job was to make. The, the, it was a live stage presentation. It was to make that work on stage. Who goes here? How are they introduced? What songs are they doing? Okay, what'll go? What'll go next after that? That'll work. And I had, God help me, I had watched a lifetime of television. I had been to a lot of shows, Broadway shows, concerts. So I had a, I had kind of an instinct as to as to how a show should flow. And but on like seeing shows and seeing concerts, uh, it's and and then there's knowing the behind the scenes and how much rehearsal and how much sound check and all the technical parts of it that we never see, which is right. that intrigues me. Well, I worked I worked for almost five years on a, on a television series called Solid Gold. It was on it was on in the, the 1980s. I was there from about 84 till it went off the air. And so I saw that. I saw what I wasn't responsible, but I saw all the machinations of everything. Uh, then I worked on on the first broadcast hip hop show. It was called The Party Machine. I was I was the writer on that. So again, I wasn't responsible for the machinations, but I was responsible for making sure the show made sense. Um, so when so you're when you when you're a writer on a show that's music, what, um, are you kind of just putting together the segments, or are you also writing dialogue for announcers or voiceover? How does that work? I'm it's it's okay. Who's the, whoever the host is? I'm writing what they're going to say. Hello okay. and welcome to the Spirit of Rock and Roll. My name is Cousin Brucey, and tonight we've got a great show for you. That kind of a thing. Cool. I mean, I actually did six episodes of a show called The Spirit of Rock and Roll, hosted by Cousin Brucey. And to give you an idea how weird the business can be, after we finished editing them, the executive producers disappeared with the master tapes, and they've never been seen. They're gone. They're gone. And and, and where are these guys? I mean, where are these producers? Did, are did are people try like did they get tracked down and go? Where did you go with these? The, the guy who hired me, who was the producer, mm-hmm. I was the co-producer and writer, he tried for years to find them. Now, I had 
made VHS tapes, if anybody remembers VHS, of those shows. So you my, still had something. So I had something. I could watch them, but I they, they can't be shown. They're not broadcast quality. Well, they, no, they're not broadcast quality in the 21st century. They're, they're, they're not YouTube quality in the 21st century. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. It's like everything needs to be 4K. I'm like, well, let's go Super 8 again. Let's let's just, <laughs> come on, man. Uh, I, I'm i a content person. Mm-hmm. Maybe that comes from starting. My first job was as a sports writer for the town newspaper. There was no pictures. There was no visuals. There was no sound. You had to tell a story in 250 to 500 words. And, you know, when, when I was in college, and I, I mentioned earlier that the you know, journalism major was too difficult, it wasn't that it was hard work. It was just that it was work. And I was lazy. <laughs> and, and, and I remember going into a, the first day of class one year in college, and the, the professor would say, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a midterm and a final and a term paper. If there was a term paper... I was more likely than not to drop the class. I wasn't going to write something that was 2,000 words long. What are you kidding? And within a, within just a few years from that thought, I had a, a book. I had to deliver a book that I think was 80,000 or 90,000 words long. I mean, it was, you know, word count may not mean anything on the radio, but if you, if you think of a page of words as 300 words, 90,000 words is a lot of pages. But the difference from what I'm hearing is you got to write what your passion was, not what a term paper was at the end of a quarter for a instructor or a professor. That, that would be a, that would be a good way to put it. I, I, the books I've written, I was passionate about. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the Beach Boys and the California Myth led to me writing the authorized uh, autobiography of the Bee Gees. I love the Bee Gees. Um, I was hired a number of years ago, I guess it's 30 years ago, to write the Beatles and Beach Boys chapters for the Capitol Records 50th anniversary book. Huh. Oh, okay, here are the files. You can look through our files so you can see what was going on. I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. You know, it's I've, I've been fortunate in that um, – I describe it like a long chain of dominoes. I don't know if you played with dominoes when you yeah, were a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you would set them up, and then you would touch one domino, and they would all fall down. Well, if you take certain dominoes out of my career, we're not talking because things would not have happened, and it would, we may be talking about ten thousand dominoes for me to get to this spot. Uh, but the biggest one was me moving to California and saying, "I'm going to write a book about Brian Wilson." I arrived in L.A. on a Saturday night. I was staying with a friend who who lived in Santa Monica. Monday morning, crossing the street in Santa Monica. I hadn't been here 36 hours. Walking towards me was Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And I walked up to him and said to him, Hi, Dennis, my name is David Leaf. I just moved here to write a book about your brother, Brian. And he laughed. And laughed. I can still hear the echo of the laughter. And he just said, like this, good luck. <laughs> I mean, it was, he was, there was nothing he could do to help. Yeah. Wow. So, what was the little town you were in where you were uh, covering sports? 
I, I grew up uh, in a town called New Rochelle, New York. Oh, okay, just, just just north of New York City. Just north of New York City, famous for TV fans as the home of Dick Van Dyke. Yep. The, the, the reason because Carl Reiner, who created and wrote the Dick Van Dyke show, was living in New Rochelle before he moved to California and created the Dick Van Dyke show. And that's why I know New Rochelle, because I'm a huge fan of the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> there, you go. there were a lot of famous people who lived there through the years. I mean, when I was in high school, Willie Mays Jr. was huh. on the high school baseball team. Because Willie Mays, wow. um, I think it was his, his his first wife. I think she lived there. I can see the house. Uh, Ruby D. and Ossie Davis lived there. Uh, Don McLean of, of American Pie fame lived in New Rochelle. Uh, so, and, and there were a lot of others. The song 45 Minutes from Broadway was written, um, you know, 100 years ago because New Rochelle was the place to go. If, if you left New York to live in a, in a ritzy town, New Rochelle was where you went. My father remembers as a kid that some of his friends were being drawn by Norman Rockwell. Wow. Yeah, like when he was five or six years old, before Norman moved north, um, there was the, the town was founded over five hundred years ago, so it had a lot of history, a lot of Revolutionary War history. Uh, the, the son of one of the teachers in my high school had had been one of the three Freedom Riders who was murdered during the Civil Rights Movement. So there was this. This was not a typical suburb. We had. Uh, my my grammar school was was integrated, but, but we still had busing to further integrate the school. Um, my high school burned down my senior year, or burned down enough that we couldn't go there anymore. Guy set it on fire. It was, it was crazy times. Yeah, but but you had access also to New York City. Did you get into New York City as much as you could when you were a kid, or was that, or did you? We stay sure in, did. Yeah. We're, you know, it, it was a different world. I, I can't imagine, I mean, I've never been a parent, but I can't imagine being a parent and saying to your kids today, okay, um, you're going to take the train into the city and go to the movies. And we did that all the time because movies had, first run movies only played in New York. So we went in the day, like the great, the great Escape starring Steve McQueen. We took the train in to see that. I was 10 years old. Wow. I remember constantly taking the train into the city to go to, I was a big uh, hockey and basketball fan to go see the Rangers and, and the Knicks. Uh, I used to, my father had a, had a part-time office in New York and many days I would ride into the city with him and he would drop me off in midtown Manhattan and then say, meet me down at my office at, at four o'clock. And I would just wander the streets of New York um, by myself. And, and it was, it was, it was like being in the what's the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I mean, that was that it was that era of New York, and it, and it was it was pretty marvelous. Yeah, did you did you come across any uh, problems as you're a kid going through New York? Uh, did you ever get mugged? Ever uh, have any issues with? Uh... Just once on the train, but uh, this is a a, 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 a GP rated show. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, well. We could be, we could innuendo. So, <laughs> okay, let's say the let's say the guy sitting next to me had had he had a long reach. Um, but but uh, no, I didn't run into any trouble at all. It, it it 
I mean, I, you know, I you'd buy a pretzel at the corner. You'd walk around. There were a lot of record stores to go in and out of. There were music stores. It, it really was just just like in the movies. Yeah. I mean, it, it there was there was because it, it was Midtown Manhattan was was a pretty straightforward kind of place. It was a tourist destination. And and the, the neon signs in the movie theaters, and I can remember one of the neon signs was a giant, a guy, giant picture of a guy smoking a camel cigarette. <laughs> and out of his out of his mouth, smoke would come puffing <laughs> out. You know, and, and I don't know if 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 many people watch the ball drop on New Year's Eve in Times Square. But Times Square, you know, I'm talking about Times Square 60 years ago. It was a neon-filled paradise. Until it became a peep show muggers joint, right? Is that what happened later? Or? Well, 42nd Street had sort of become a, a peep show. And then in the mid-70s, New York went, went, went downhill. There's a famous headline from the Daily News. When Gerald Ford was president. It was the city was going bankrupt and reached out to the federal government. And the headline was Ford to city drop dead. Um, you know, the great tabloid headlines. Yeah. But, you know, as, as a kid growing up back East, I read the daily news every day. I, re- I read the New York post. The New York times was a little too smart for me. Uh, my mother loved the, the journal American. There was the tribune. So you, you could read columnists, sports columnists, right. political columnists, whatever, and, and fascinating people, Pete Hamill, J, uh, J, Jimmy Breslin, just amazing stuff. And, and not really, you know, I wasn't sophisticated to know what they were talking about uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the close-up nature of it, but it was fascinating to hear what they were saying, the opinions they were offering. So we were musical, we were political. I was a sports nut. Uh, in, in the time when I was a kid, the New York Yankees were were the kings of the universe. Um, and New Rochelle is pretty close to the Bronx, right? Pretty close to the Bronx. So yeah. we went to Yankee Stadium a lot. It was about a 25-minute ride. Huh. Uh, I think for our birthday every year, what do you want for your birthday? I want to go to a Yankee game. So yeah. that would be my birthday in April, my brother's birthday in May. My father would take us, we'd go on Father's Day for, for Father's Day to a Yankee game. He had a friend in the advertising business who didn't like baseball, but got a lot of free tickets. So he would give us the tickets. So we went to a, a lot of games. So are but, the Yankees still your team? Yes. Yeah. But, but even why the pause there? There was, there was a pause. Well, <laughs> sports in general has become super big business it's that's yeah. unattractive yeah um and and the way players switch franchises well 38 million a year wasn't enough so i'm going to get 49 million here in a 12-year contract it's it's hard it's hard to be loyal to to players when when they're doing what's best for them but in, in the days when i was a kid a player played his entire career with the same team yeah um you know your your audience. You know Willie Mays was a giant right. until the very very end when he had a, a kind of a sad ending with with the, with the New York Mets. But Mickey Mantle and, and those kinds of icons. Every city had an icon. Roberto Clemente in Pittsburgh and Al Kaline in Detroit. Everybody had their guy. 
Yeah. And and um, free agency changed that. And good for the players because they were really um, they were really getting cheated. They were getting paid so little money. Yeah. Back back in the day, you know, the owners made up an arbitrary rule. Oh, hundred thousand dollars is the top salary. And that's yeah. the most you can get paid. It was like, well, where did that rule come from? Well, they they made it up. Right. But so so free agency made it possible for players to not just make a living, but to 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 bring security to their lives, because if a player got hurt, it's not like the owners were going to say, you know what, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. That wasn't going to happen. So good for the players. Uh, the hesitancy. Uh, my mother was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Oh, she, grew up, okay. she, she she grew up in Brooklyn. Right. And and so when I was a little kid, a really little kid, her nickname for me was Pee-wee because Pee-wee Reese was the Dodgers shortstop. When the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, she was brokenhearted like all Brooklyn Dodger fans were. So the Dodgers were the enemy. But I've now lived in Los Angeles 47 years. So I, I, I root for the Dodgers and, unless they're playing the Yankees. So that that would be the, the hesitancy, and and they usually don't play the Yankees. But I guess this year they, uh, they're doing a thing where every single team plays every single other team. Because I'm I'm from San Francisco, so I'm a Giants fan. Of so course. and and it's just like I live in L.A., so it's enemy territory, and 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 they, they it's a cult. It's a total cult. I'm stuck in the cult, but um, but it's just like opening day. The Giants are already playing the Yankees in Yankee Stadium next year, and it's just like. Wait, what? It doesn't make any sense at all. Everything is about marketing. Yeah. It's it's, it's how can we sell this to, right. to, to an ever-diminishing cult? Yeah. Because uh, baseball really isn't, you know, baseball long ago lost its primacy to pro football as, as the number one spectator sport. Yeah. But um, I, you know, when I moved out here, in 75, the Yankees and the Dodgers played in the World Series in 77, 78, and 81. Wow. I went to I went to see them all three years they were there. I sat on the bleachers and and you know, having gone to World Series games in New York, I never saw the Yankees actually win the World Series. But I was there at Dodger Stadium when they won the World Series. So that was that was pretty cool. And so I remained a fan and and an avid baseball watcher through the eighties into the, then my career just, I just didn't have time. The other thing is, is I don't know if it's true about where you live, where I lived in in Southern California, it used to be a half hour in traffic to Dodger stadium and then 20 minutes home. Well, when it became two hours, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, you know, no thanks. I, I'm. I, I gotta. I gotta. I gotta stay home. Uh, it's just. It's. And the truth is, Vin Scully made you feel like not only were you at the game, but that you were sitting with the coolest guy who was at the game. And and so listening to him on the radio was as as good as going to the game. Maybe even better. In fact, Dodger, Dodger fans for years brought transistor radios, if your audience remembers that that thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. iPhones before without pictures. Um, <laughs> the the um, people were listening to the game, partly because when the Dodgers moved to, to L.A., there was there was no Dodger Stadium. They were in the Coliseum, which was really a track and field arena. 
was built for the 32 Olympics. And so fans were so far from the field, they couldn't really see what was going on. So they were listening to Vince Scully on the radio while they were at the game. Mm -hmm. That that kind of became a habit. But, um, you know, sports and music were my passions as kids. Uh, I've, I've made my life in music. The fact that I'm a teacher at UCLA is, is in the music school is, is as surreal as possible, given what I told you before about my academic. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Now you're handing out the turn papers. I, I, I sure am. <laughs> Wait, what, what, what do you, what, what's the class that you teach at UCLA? So I have three courses. I don't know if you remember inside the actor's studio, the old TV. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I decided as a TV producer, I was going to make my courses entertaining. Mm-hmm. So my first course was called Docs That Rock, Docs That Matter, about music documentaries. Yeah. And every week I would bring in a director of a music documentary and I would interview him. And then the students could ask him questions and we'd show clips from their film. Um, then I started teaching a course called Songwriters on Songwriting, in which I would a, a great songwriter would come into class and sit at the piano or with an acoustic guitar. And again, I'd interview them. Uh, and the way I describe it is I'd come out and do a lecture. Well, that was my opening monologue. And then I'd bring out the guest and we'd talk and then the students could ask questions. Um, I had I've had amazing, amazing songwriters, Randy Newman, Burt Bacharach, Jimmy Webb. Mac wow. Davis, Lamont Dozier, Mike Stoller, um, as well as contemporary songwriters as well. Uh, then, then I started a course a few years ago called The Real Beatles, R-E-E-L. It was already a course in the music school analyzing the Beatles music. And I said, well, I can't do that. But I can talk about how the Beatles were visually presented to us. What, it was, what was it like to be a Beatles fan from start to today? How, how did we see them through visual media? So who do I get to come and talk to the class? Well, I get people who have either worked with the Beatles or one of the Beatles. But so I've had Michael Lindsay Hogg, who directed Let It Be. I did an interview with Peter Jackson, who did the Beatles Get Back uh, docuseries. Right, last year. yeah, that was Peter, good. Peter, Peter Asher from Peter and Gordon, who worked as the head of A&R at Apple Records, but also his roommate for, for a while was a guy named Paul McCartney. So I, I, I believe that in all my classes, I'm presenting living history, that, that I'm, I'm talking to people who are not historians, but people who actually lived it, who, who, who can, can inform the students of what it takes to be successful. Because more, more than anything, what I'm trying to do is teach them you know, almost none of the songwriters in my students in my songwriting class are going to become successful songwriters. Almost none of the students in my documentary class are even going to try to become documentary makers. Certainly none of the students in the Beatles class are going to become Beatles. But what they're learning is what does it take to become successful in whatever your chosen field? And one of my favorite things of all is when I, like this past May, I got an email from a student uh, who had just graduated from medical school and just wanted to let me know and let me know how inspiring my class had been that she had taken. And that's that's a great feeling to know that you're, 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 you're the students at UCLA, sorry, Berkeley, are the smartest kids in the country. I mean, they're just amazing because they come from all over the world too. Yeah, they're, they're brilliant kids. There's nothing they can't do. So I teach them 
um, I came up with this cliche that I teach every year, the four Ds. What does it take to be successful? Discipline, dedication, devotion, and determination. Determination being the most important one. But I'll say to them, there isn't anything you guys can't do. The question is, how hard are you willing to work at it? And uh, when Randy Newman was a guest in my class, and he heard me talk about the four Ds, he said, you forgot one. You forgot the fifth D. I said, what's that? He said, depression. <laughs> True that. <laughs> I really, you know, this, bringing up the domino, how the domino um, metaphor, it's just, it's interesting. I feel like that you from just from our, from our small conversation here, uh, but I feel like you've curated your life to what you, to what you would want. It, it's almost like you've went, you know, it's it's like you're the you were the producer when you were a kid and went okay look here's what we need to do this year here's what we need to do this year and then I'm gonna I'm gonna have my own late night talk show but it's gonna be on a UCLA campus and I'll disguise it as a class it's that's that I'm that's the vibe I'm getting well it's I'm glad you're getting that vibe it's it's I think it's the exact opposite okay. it's it's because my students will say to me they'll look at my um website or my IMDb page, uh, Internet Movie Database, I think is what that stands for. And they'll see all my credits and they'll say, Professor, how did you do all of those things? And I'll say, well, one, one thing is I was a workaholic. I said, but the other thing is what you're seeing is the one time out of 100 where the answer wasn't no. You don't see the 99 ideas that I couldn't get financing for that I couldn't get distribution for, that I couldn't find a network that, that wanted to hear that. So, so the answer isn't, how did I do all those things? The answer is, how did, how did I, how was I willing to accept so much rejection? And that's particularly relevant in, in the worlds we live in, Tony, that this is all about, if you're talking about anything creative, you have to be, you don't start out okay, somebody's going to give me X million dollars to make a studio film. You start out like, I can't wait to see it. I haven't had a chance. The Fablemans, you start out by a kid with an eight millimeter camera in his backyard making movies. And that's all he ever wanted to do in his entire life. And, uh, and so that's how you become Steven Spielberg. Because not only are you devoted to it and determined to do it, but you also have a gift. You also have the ability. Now, my parents were great storytellers. And I was telling stories from the time I was a kid, sometimes to get out of trouble, sometimes <laughs> just, just to amuse my younger brother. It's not my pot, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 wasn't, it, it was so much more innocent than that. My, my, my parents had, I had a friend who had a great comic book collection. This is how much... Times have changed. I guess about 80 years ago, comics were very racy. Yeah. And, and so there was a comic book code that was established, but parents hadn't caught up to that. So I was told no comic books. Well, I wasn't going to listen. So I bought comic books and I brought them home. And now it's like, okay, what happens if they find them? So I would hide them. And it's like, okay, so if they pull out the letter C in the, in the encyclopedia, and see the comic book behind that, how am I going to explain how it got there? So I would come up with this story 
And then I'd say, well, no, if, if I say that, then they'll say this. And so I'd have to come up with these bulletproof stories. So I, I became a very good uh, fabricator. And you're also creating, you're creating the possibility of what the dialogue response is going to be. So not only, so, so you're, you're, you're creating like these character arcs and then all these ways the characters can choose to go. And then you're like, all right, so I have my battle plan if they say this. And then if they come back with this, then then my character says this. Yes. And it's just it's it's like it's like shaping three-dimensional characters out of the comic book that's behind Encyclopedia C. It it, it exactly right. I, I was telling stories, creating stories, creating dialogue. I remember in, in ninth grade biology, I had a friend, David Bloom, who was a great artist. And we would he would draw comic books and I would write the dialogue for them in class. One of the reasons I didn't do very well in that class or that Who that needs school. geometry anyway? <laughs> geometry, biology. Well, biology, I, you, you kind of need. It's good to know biology. But, yeah, for um, dating. <laughs> <laughs> I, Where does I, this uh, go? No. <laughs> wait a second. You told me this was not an R-rated program. Oh no, no, we could be R-rated. We just can't swear. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Um, that biology would have been very helpful, as my as my father said to my older brother, "Learn it on the streets like I did." <laughs> really? <laughs> well, that's what my brother told me when I asked him. I don't know. Yeah, what and know. you're like, are you going to help pay for the clinic visits? <laughs> <laughs> I was happy to get a date. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I was fascinated with the Beach Boys was they had a song when I was 11 years old called Surf City, or at least I thought that was their song. It, was, it turned out it was Jan and Dean, but Brian Wilson had written, he'd come up with the line, Two Girls for Every Boy. And I was like, I can't get a date. Two girls. <laughs> yeah. I'm, go I'm going there. Now, now, did your dating game change when you got to California? Was 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 it more available to you to get a date? No, really. I, I was. I just. I just. I just didn't have good social skills. Yeah. It. It, it was. It was just as bad in in my in my first years in California as my last years in, in New York. It. It was kind of. Um, you know what, what's going to cross my path that isn't going to say no. Um, you know, it's it's. So you have. Oh wait, wait a second. This is great. So there's a fear of rejection when it comes to romantic encounters, but there's less fear of rejection when it comes to high stakes productions. If you want to put it that way, uh, you know, my mother and father had told us a love story when we were kids when they met, blind date, January. Engaged in February, married in June. Wow. And lived happily ever after. Wow. For 63 years till my father passed away. Wow. Lo a real love story. Yeah. They didn't tell us about their dating life before that. I didn't find that out until <laughs> much, much later. Oh, it got so saucy I, before. <laughs> I, Oh yeah, my my mother and father were were were, were players, uh, I, but I didn't find that out till I was in my fifties, so it was of no value to me. Um, you guys, I'm fifty and I'm finding out about this now. It was unbelievable. I was helping my father uh, 
in his last year, he wanted to write his autobiography. So that's when I found out. Um, <laughs> but I thought that when you went out on a date, you were meeting someone who was a prospective marriage partner, not just somebody you were going out on a date with. So that was really not helpful to, to think everyone, you know, it was, it was I, idiotic. And that's I got, the only word for it. I mean, I grew up very strict religious, so I had the same problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm so. sorry to hear that, Tony. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very sorry to hear it. Fortunately, I did eventually um, learn to get over that, but yeah. Um, yeah. that 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 took um, took a lot of years, and we don't have time to discuss all of that. But um, <laughs> no, it's I'm divorced now, but it's but I st- I still have, and, and I was a virgin until after I was married, so that's kind of you know that, that's pretty that's strict. Yeah, and so. Um, trying to date without the idea i i constantly have to go you're not marrying this person you're having a cup of coffee <laughs> it's still in my head there's that's not good that's not good it's like the, the first conversation she's just told you she just bought a vacation home someplace you don't like to go to and you're thinking right. well, I'm, I'm not going to marry her how am i going to pay for half of that <laughs> No, no, you, you you want to get that out of here. You want you just want you just want good vibrations playing in your head. There not God, go. not God only knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's that's uh, um, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's uh, it's so interesting talking to you. This uh, I time flies. Thank you. I you know I'm I I went on a lot of dates mm-hmm. and. It's good experience because when you when you meet somebody who's right, you 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 know it quickly. Yeah. So did so you found Mrs. Wright? I did. I and did. when and uh, what was the moment that you knew? Oh, about twenty minutes. Really, twenty minutes. Yeah. Can I, you pinpoint the? Can you pinpoint? either the feeling or just what was the action that happened where you went, this is it. Well, it was after a lot of bad dates. Mm -hmm. And and so I knew what I didn't want. Yeah. I knew what wasn't right. And we're engaged now for, for over four years. Um, But I knew, I knew right away. Yeah. I knew with, with, if it wasn't 15 minutes, it was in the first half hour that there was, okay, this, this, this is the person who's right for me. Just what she, the way she was saying, the way she was carrying herself. And you're engaged right now. We're we're engaged. Right. But so you haven't had sex yet. Well, I'm not, I'm not you, Tony. (laughs) Are you excited for when you get to have sex after you're married? (laughs) We, we we are permanently engaged. That's great. And, you know, that's pretty fun because that's all. I mean, some, saying hi, this is my fiance is actually a lot more fun than hi, this is my wife. I think there's I think there's a little bit of because um, this is just coming to my head now. So tell me I'm crazy and I'm wrong. But like like wife feels settled. Fiance feels like there's a start like 
the orchestra is coming up, but I like but, that. But the wife is like the orchestra is there, and nothing wrong with being married. I love being married. Uh, not well. I I love the possibility of being married, but but the um, but it's just like that's there on that level. But if it's a fiance, the fiance is a is a grand gesture. It is. I know. I was I I was married a long time. My wife passed away, so it took me a while to to realize that I didn't want to be alone the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but um, fiance is much more romantic than than here's my wife. Everyone's got French. everyone's everyone's got a wife. Yeah. Or an ex-wife. That... <laughs> I got the ex-wife. <laughs> no, it's what it, you know. And, and of course, my friends are saying, "Have you guys set a date?" They've been asking yeah. for years. Yeah. And her her answer is, "Tell them the engagement's going so well. Why ruin it?" And we're going to have another engagement party. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had one yet. You got to milk it. We're going to um, have <laughs> no engagement party. David, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Tony. It's great, great to talk with you. Um, I, I think I went through the whole bottle of wine um, <laughs> be, because uh, those the, I've told you things that you know I, I shouldn't be saying on the radio. David Lee on drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, God Only Knows: The Story of Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and the California Myth. Remember to register for Kickstart Your Novel for 2023. That's on Saturday, January 14th on Zoom, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. London time. Only $15 to join. Register at TonyDuchesne.com or DrinksWithTony.com. Next week on the show, we have Elisa Bassist. She's the author of Hysterical. Hey, have a great New Year's, and I'll see you next week.
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.